here at Valley Bible Church, we're going to be going through uh, transition. Uh, it's kind of a big transition. And when I say transition, maybe that's not the appropriate term. I don't want you to think staff or, or, or anything like that. What we're talking about is kind of a program transition. And it's a big transition. And it impacts this church in its entirety. Um, and that transition is happening on August 18th. August 18th. So not this Sunday, not the following Sunday, but the next Sunday, August 18th, there's a big transition that's coming. And this Sunday service, this, this message, and then the following message on the 11th, given by Pastor Gabriel Lopez, our junior high pastor, will be kind of explaining, unpacking, uh, and letting you know why this transition is happening. Now, this transition is not something that just kind of came up uh, on a whim. It's not something that we've done lightly. It's not a change that we're making that isn't well thought out. This is months and months of preparation, of planning, of researching. A lot of researching went behind what we're doing. And what the transition is this. I won't hold you in suspense any longer. What the transition is this. Right now, our student ministries on Sunday morning what student ministries look like on Sunday morning is they gather over there in the Family Life Center. That's what we call that building over here if you're a guest. That building over there, they meet at the 11 o'clock hour. It's the only thing we have for our student ministry. Well, that's going to change. That's going to change. What's going to happen now is what we want for students is we want our students and we want our church to think of Sunday as a two-service Sunday. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is for our students, we believe that two things are important. And if you are a parent of a student, you've gotten a letter. If you are a student, you've gotten a postcard, a little flashier than the letter, because we thought we have to hold your attention more than your parents. I made the letter only one page, three paragraphs. So if you're ADD, you're good, right? And, uh, and now we're preaching, so we're giving you that extra touch there. So with that, what we're doing is we believe that two terms are what's resonating in our mind, commonality and community. Commonality and community. Commonality meaning we believe it is very important for our students to have a peer-to-peer -peer expression of their faith. Seeing somebody just like them be a Christian. And what they also need is they need relevant teaching to their age group. They need to understand what is it like to be a student and be a Christian? What's it like? What are the situations and things I go through as a student? How does the Bible speak to those things? And we want to give them that. They are not losing out on that. They are not losing out on that. We're just changing the time. We're changing the time to be at 9 o'clock. Now, we expect most students to probably be there at 9.15 because half the service doesn't come until the announcements and songs are over. So we kind of expect you to be here at, at 9.15. And where we're going to meet, have the students meet is not in that building, but in this building. They're going to meet in this building on the third floor up there in those classrooms. We've painted them. We've put banners in them. There's a custom coffee machine in there. There's giant TVs in there. We've made it as cool as we possibly can. Okay. And we've done that, unashamedly. We've done that. We've made it cool. Hoping that when they get this peer-to-peer -peer kind of exposure of the faith and relevant teaching, what will happen then is at the 11 o'clock hour, we believe this community idea is important. That they need to see an intergenerational exposure and expression of the faith. They need to see people younger, people older. They need both of those. So we're working in tandem with those two things and I have presented a plan. We, my staff, my youth staff, we've presented a plan to Pastor Phil, to Pastor Tim. We've expressed it. We've gone through it. We've researched it. Everything we've gone through, we signed off, and this transition is happening August 18th, but it's a big one. It's a big one. And in these two messages, we can't unpack everything that we've thought through in the last month. But what I want to give you is the biblical conviction. Where in God's Word have we felt the pressure to make this move? And that's what we're going to unpack today. 
So before we do that, let's pray. Father, we love you. Man, it is incredible and just. Um, we're awestruck by you. I mean, just to sing those songs, only you are holy. I'm not holy. Only you are worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm worthy of one thing, and that's your wrath, because I've disobeyed. I've broken the rules. All of them. All of them. I've broken them. But God, you have seen it fit to love a sinner like me. You have seen it fit to sacrifice your son for me. Jesus came down from the courtroom of heaven where there was beautiful and wonderful love in between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he said, I'm going to go to my broken creation that has hurt me and that is hurting. And I will redeem them. I will live among them, but I won't act like them. I'll be pure. I'll take that purity and that righteousness to my death. I'll die on a cross when the Father looks at the Son and sees all of our sin and He punishes Him and He crushes Him. But victory is won when He raises from the grave and now through faith and repentance I'm saved. God, that is a wonderful message. And that is the gospel that we seek to pass on at Valley Bible Church. And Father, I pray that if we stop passing it on, that we will pass away. But Father, I pray because we want diligently. I know the hearts of the elders and leaders at this church. We seek to pass this gospel on. So keep this lampstand burning. Let us not pass away. Let us be a beacon of hope and of life and of the gospel in the Bay Area. Be with us now as we learn from your word. Amen. So if it doesn't pass on, it passes away. If it doesn't pass on, it passes away. Now we know this. We know this with all of our cultural transitions, or sorry, traditions. We know this. If it doesn't pass on, it passes away. Like, for instance, if you're a 49er fan, and you decide for some reason, when the 49er game's on, you never watch it with your family, never watch it with your son, never watch it with your daughter, never watch it with your wife, you go off and you go to a buddy's house, right, and you isolate yourself from them. You never talk about stats. You never get excited about the games with your kids. You never buy them jerseys, get them hats, take them to games. You never do that. If you never pass on that tradition, you know what's going to happen to your family? Your son's going to grow up and be a Raider fan. <laughs> yep, that's how it works. Right? If you don't pass it on, it passes away. And we know this. We know this with all of our cultural trans tr traditions, all of it. Right? Especially with fanship. Like, I'm a Laker fan. I'm a Laker fan. I grew up in L.A., grew up in Southern California. I'm a Southern California boy. Grew up surfing, grew up skateboarding, doing all that stuff. Love the beach, all that stuff. The beaches in Northern California, not that great, right? But whatever, we'll get over it. But I'm a Laker fan. Now, why am I a Laker fan? I'm a Laker fan because my dad was a Laker fan. Because we used to watch games together. Listen to games on the radio together. Talk about players together. Talk about moves that the, that the leadership, the bus family is doing, right? We would talk about all that stuff. Now, we experienced, me and my dad, when my dad was alive and we were together, we were in what I call the wilderness wandering for a Laker fan. We were in between Magic and Kareem and Kobe and Shaq. We were in the losing period of the Laker land, right? It was tough to be in that period. See, but these fanships, these traditions, always have past and present elements. That's how they pass on. They're traditional, yet they're modern at the same time. Like my dad remembers Boston getting beat, right, when they had Bird. He remembers LA, Boston when Bird went down. Great day for us, right? And I remember beating Boston when the Trinity of Evil was there. Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, and Ray Allen. I remember that. 
And now my son, Paxton, he wasn't there for that, okay? He wasn't there. He hasn't seen a championship, but we're Lakers, so we'll get him one before he's like five, okay? And I don't know who he's going to have. He might have LeBron James and Carmelo Anthony. If you follow SportsCenter, that's probably going to happen in 2014. Just, I'm not a prophet. I'm a son of a prophet. No, I'm just kidding. But there's always that modern and, and traditional at the same time, right? We've got another uh, family, the big fans, the, the Galvins, okay? The huge 49er fans. And dad, Leonardo, he's a 49er fan, and so Josh, his son, is a 49er fan. Now, when Josh was a little kid, he used to watch all these old 49er victories because a lot of victories for the 49ers are old. <laughs> you lost the Super Bowl. Okay, now that that's done, right? So, but Josh used to watch all these films, right? All these great game tapes of all this cool stuff, right? And so the funny thing is when Leonardo finally brought him to practice, he was looking for all these great players. So he's out there looking. He's like, where's Joe Montana? <laughs> well, uh, not there, right? But even in this, that fanship has passed on, even in the, in the wilderness wandering for you, right? Even in the, in the midst of loss and, and, and no victories, right? There has been a time where that has passed on, that has passed on from generation to generation. And it has a past tradition and it has a modern manifestation, right? Josh and Leonardo still remember the catch, right? Every 49er fan knows the catch. That's all I should have to say, okay? But now they also can do what? Now they can Kaepernick together, right? There's that present and past. See, but there's something in our culture that's not passing on. In fact, it's passing away fast. It's not plateauing. It's not even close to growing. It's passing away. Even in our greatest denominations, our faith is passing away. One of the strongest denominations in North America is the Southern Baptist Convention. I go to a school that is sponsored by the Southern Baptist Convention. They had a lunch, and they basically reported to us that our churches are closing their doors. Our faith is not passing on. And we know this in our student ministry here. We know this in student ministry across the country because these statistics are depressing for somebody like me because I'm in that pivotal transition point, high school. Right, and I know the magical age of 16. It said 16 nat nationally, a youth pastor knows at 16 he is losing more students than he is gaining. And this is true at Valley Bible Church, right here. This isn't just other churches. We are not special in that sense. We're not kept away from that, that, that ever-present and uh, type of phenomenon. That is true of us. We are no exception, no anomaly. We get it too. I know at 15, we're probably reaching more students than we're losing. We're still losing 15-year-olds. That happens. You lose students. We lose church members. We lose adults. But I know at 15, we're still gaining enough. So if we look at the 15-year-olds, we're, we're probably still on the positive end. But once 16 hits, that junior year hits, and they get the keys, they get the permit, they get a little bit of freedom, that's when I say goodbye. That's when it starts to decline. And statistics tell, tell us that 70% of high school grads will leave. Is that true of Valley Bible Church? Yes. 70% of our high school students will leave. Our faith is passing away. We are not passing it on. Now the question is, why? Why? Well, I think one of those answers is actually very simple. Forgetfulness. The sin of forgetfulness. 
We've forgotten the things of the Lord. Why does it not pass from one generation to another? And why does it stay consistent even in one generation? It's the sin of forgetfulness. Now that may seem very simple and may seem trivial, but I'm telling you, it is a prominent sin in the Bible, the sin of forgetfulness. There is an overwhelming tension in this book between forgetting the things of God and remembering the things of God. It's huge, so big that a psalmist in Psalms 106, when he looks at all the history of Israel, all of it, he recounts from beginning to end, he says there is one identifiable sin over and over and over and over and over again. And he takes every major folly that the people of God has, and he ties it to what? Forgetfulness. They forgot. They forgot. They didn't pass it on. They forgot. So what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack for you this pattern of forgetfulness. In a sense, to prove to you, to show you that this isn't just a modern problem. This is a problem that the people of God have had for centuries, even since their birth. The sin of forgetfulness has reared its ugly head generation and generation and generation and generation. And after that, what I want to do is I want to point you to two people that I believe handle this sin of forgetfulness the best. Joshua and Paul. And I think Joshua will be the main focus of what we do. But Joshua is the paramount figure, the one who is the most qualified to deal with this sin of forgetfulness. But before we get to Joshua, let's set the context. Let's set the context of this pattern and sin of forgetfulness. Because what we do for us is we take forgetfulness and memory problems and we throw them to the nursing homes. We say that's at the time of dementia. But see, we forget, we have a sin of forgetfulness at birth. We have a sin of forgetfulness in our teen years. We have the sin of forgetfulness in our adult years. We have spiritual, if you will, dementia. We're forgetting the things of God. So move to Psalms 106. If you don't want to move a lot in the Bible today, if you are afraid of a paper cut or something like that, this will be what's called a finger-licking good sermon. That's what my pastor used to say because he had the old Bible where you licked your finger and flipped the pages. So if you are afraid of paper cuts, you are prone to the, such a, a, um, things, such injuries, just put your finger in Joshua chapter 24. That's going to be the main passage we're going to. Okay, but before we get there, we really need to set up the context and build the tension of what's going on in Joshua chapter 24. And we're going to do that by first going to Psalms 106. Now, if you don't have a Bible for some reason, or you can't find the passages quick enough, this is your first time here, we're going to throw them up on the screen, so they should be up there for you. So Psalms 106, the writer of the psalm recounts all the history of Israel, which is really cool. This is like the cliff notes of the Bible. Right? If you've ever tried to start reading the Bible and you get about to Genesis, not four, and you stop. Right? Genesis is the first book of the Bible, just in case you weren't aware of that. Right? You, it's hard. The beauty is, man, Psalms 106, it gives you everything. It gives you beginning to end. It's really cool. But what the psalmist is trying to do is show how the history of Israel has been plagued by this sin of forgetfulness. So let's look. Psalms 106, we're going to start and we're going to look at verse 7. At verse 7. So verse 7 in Psalms 106 says this. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, you being God. 
Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember. There it is. There's the sin of forgetfulness. The abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. So just some quick context. What's going on is here is the people of God, their nation starts with a promise given to a man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. His family builds to many, but they are built to many in a land where they're enslaved. And that land is called Egypt. So if you want the big markers of the people of God, Abraham called Genesis 12. That's when things start. They're in slavery. They grow to be a people. They are a mass, right? They are giant, but they're in slavery. They're in slavery for 400 years. And then they make this journey to a land that God promised all the way back to Abraham. This is called the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land of milk and honey. Okay? And there's an in-between, in-between Egypt and Canaan that's called the wilderness. And what's happening right now is in Psalms 106, what he's saying is right here at the end of this Egyptian thing is where we find our first sin of forgetfulness. Which is odd because God has displayed himself in a more powerful way than maybe he's ever done in history besides the resurrection and death of Jesus Christ. He's come into the world power at the time, led by a man, strong-willed man, by the name of Pharaoh. Egypt owns everything. Nobody's stronger militarily. No one's stronger economically. They are the world power. Everybody else is puny. Everybody else. And their nation has been built on the backs of these Jewish slaves. But God comes in and he wants his people. So he doesn't cause a revolt of peasants to rise up and to fight. What he does is he takes Pharaoh to ten rounds. Ten rounds of plagues. Hellfire, he turns their, their river that they worshipped into blood. He shows his dominance. He wins every single round until he knocks Pharaoh out in the tenth round by taking his son, breaks his will, and finally Pharaoh says, just get out of here. Just leave me alone. You, I, I, I despise you. Even though our economic structure is built off of your cheap labor, get out of my country. Get out of here. And what happens is the people of God, they rejoice. They leave. They're leaving, and they have seen the mighty hand of God. Ten plagues. Ten of them. Not one, two, three, ten. Ten rounds God takes them and wins every one. And the people lead on this, like, million-man march out of Egypt. And then they get to their first obstacle, and it's a body of water. Now, if you're the people of God, you have witnessed ten miraculous signs from heaven. A body of water should be no obstacle for you. But as they stand before this body of water, stopped by it, they cannot move, they cannot cross it, not with as many as people as they have. Can't build a boat large enough. Noah's not there. Right? It'll take too long. And as they're staring at almost in a defeated way at this large body of water, they hear something behind them. And they turn and they look, and it's Pharaoh. And he's coming. And he wants what used to be his. And he has brought not only himself, but his army. And he's either going to kill them or bring them all back. So now they're nervous. And now they start complaining. And listen to what they say in Exodus chapter 14. Just listen to the sarcasm. Exodus chapter 14, in verse 11, the people of God say this to their leader Moses, who's just led them out of Egypt. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What kind of question is that? Of course there's graves in Egypt. And I'm sure if the Egyptians destroyed you, they would gladly bury you. 
But what they're saying is, really, Moses, there's no opportunity? What's going on here? Is there really not enough graves in Egypt? You just took us out here to shoot us like a dog in the wilderness. This is what you've done for us. What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But what does God do? He's gracious, he's compassionate, he's loving, he's patient. He instructs his leader, Moses, you raise your staff and watch this. Those waters, they will break apart into two walls and all these people, they're gonna walk through. And as these people walk through, they look behind them to see that charging army, those footsteps, that dust cloud. They hear the metal. They know that these guys were prepared for war. And Pharaoh, what does he do? He leads them straight into those walls. Straight into them. Until all his army is amassed in that little canal. And what does he do? Crashes it together. And they finally see the death blow delivered to Pharaoh. That's what they see in their rearview mirror. They see their enemy, their oppressor for 400 years gone. You see, but then they start walking. Oh, man, and their feet start hurting. And their bellies start aching. And that bread that they took, it's kind of stale. You know what I mean? The top ramen they've had like 9, 10, 13 times. You know, beef top ramen is only special like once, okay? They're getting hungry. And they've got kids to feed. So they complain again. And this is what the psalmist picks up on. The psalmist picks up on this in verse 13 of Psalms 106. What's their sin? Verse 13, but they soon forgot. They forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. And that's all God wanted. God knew needs would present, present themselves. He wasn't seeking to push away the needs of their life. He wanted them to come to him with those needs. But instead of taking their needs in prayer to God and asking for him to provide, what do they do? They complain. That sounds like me. And they forget God. And it says... But they had wanton cravings in the wilderness, and God put the, and they put God to the test in the desert, and he gave them what they asked for. But he sent a wasting disease among them. Maybe to teach them a lesson. I'll fill your bellies, but I'm going to hurt you too. So you'll remember. You'll remember the God who you're messing with. I'm a powerful God. Did you see what I did in Egypt? Did you see what I just did in the Red Sea? Did you see what I did, and you forgot me? But God is gracious again. He gives them manna from heaven and quail. And he feeds them, and their bellies are full, but they keep walking. Oh, they keep walking. And then their leader, this mighty Moses, this one man leading millions, goes up a mountain, and he's gone for an awful long time. He's gone for an awful long time. He's up there supposedly speaking to God, and they get anxious, they get nervous. I mean, think about where they're at. They were literally just in chains not that long ago. They've seen the deliverance by ten plagues. They've seen two miracles in the Red Sea and the provision of the manna and of the quail. And now they're like, hey man, you were talking about this promised land stuff over here. This thing way back that you said was promised first to Abraham. That milk and honey sounds really good because this manna is stale. Bring us the milk and honey. So this is what they decide to do. And if you've ever read the, the narrative of the golden calf, you ever read that story, it's kind of an odd story. You see, because what happened is they said, let's have a festival for the Lord, for Yahweh. They used God's name, the one who delivered them from Egypt. But then they build an idol, which is odd. But in those days, what happened is if you had a family idol, its seat was a golden calf. You would put it on a calf, and then you put the idol on top. But now Moses is telling them that this God that they serve is invisible. 
okay, so let's just not have an idol on it. Let's build the golden calf. And our invisible God will just sit there. And what they say, this is their request to Aaron before this, this calf is fashioned. We want a God that will go before us. What they want? They wanted a God that they can loop a rope around his neck and pull him where they wanted to. They were impatient. Bring us to the promised land. Bring us now. We want it now. And what does the psalmist say? What does the psalmist say is their sin there? In verse 19 and 21, it says, They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that ate grass. They forgot. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. They forgot, they forgot, they forgot, they forgot, they forgot. Every major sin and folly of the people of God, the psalmist ties to one thing, forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. This ugly little sin, which causes amnesia of the great moves and mighty acts of God, and they forget. Well, Moses has gone through all of these forgetful things. Moses, their leader, who's brought them out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, brought them through manna and quail, even brought them at a time to get water out of a rock, which is amazing, turned bitter water into sweet water. Then also at the Red Sea, or at the um, site of the golden calf, he's gone through all that, and he knows they are prone to forgetfulness. So before he leaves, before they're about to enter the promised land, which he does not go in, he's about to die. He decides, I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach me some messages. And so it's four or five messages. We don't know the total. And that is put together in the book of Deuteronomy. And that's Moses saying, listen, before I die, you have a problem. And let me tell you what the remedy is. Let me tell you what the remedy to your forgetfulness is. And this is Deuteronomy 6. The funny part about this is this is the most famous chapter in all the Torah, in all the Old Testament. If you ask the Jew, what is the most famous chapter in your whole Old Testament in the Torah, they would port to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, it's it. That's it. And the funny thing is their sin that they are most prone to as the people of God is forgiveness, yet their favorite chapter is the remedy of that forgiveness. Listen to what Moses says. Moses is actively seeking to fight this evil sin called forgetfulness. So before he dies, he gathers his people and he preaches this message. And here's a part of it. Deuteronomy chapter 6. In verse 4 it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. That's the Shema. Do you have any Jewish friends? That's the Shema. They say that all the time, all their festivals, on everything. That's the Shema. That encapsulates all of their beliefs in one succinct small statement. But the funny thing is that the amount of attention that's given to that statement isn't very large. It's what follows it. And what follows it is our remedy. It says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. 
And you shall talk of them and you shall sit in your house. And when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you shall be to you as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on your doorposts and on your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, this is the promised land, to give to you with great and good cities that you do not build, with houses full of good things that you do not fill and cisterns that you do not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you do not plant. When you eat and are full, then take care, lest you what? Forget. He knows. He knows they're going to forget. That's the history of their life. They forget, they forget, they forget. He agrees with the psalmist. So what does Deuteronomy 6 tell us to do? What is Moses' instruction to do? Teach your children. That's it. That's what he gives them. And then he belabors this point. He exhausts this point. You know what? When you're laying down, teach him. You know what? When you're walking, teach him. When you rise, teach him. Put him smack dab in between your eyes. Put him on your arm. You know what? Put him on your door. Put him on your gates. Put him on bumper stickers. Put it everywhere. What is he saying? Anytime there's an opportunity to teach your children about the Lord, teach them about the Lord. That's how they won't forget. We have to pass it on through teaching our children. I'll give you a, a practical example of this. We do this at my home. We try to do this at my home. My wife and I, we didn't grow up with this Deuteronomy 6 mentality of being taught the things of the Lord continually, daily, not just on Sunday service, but continually and daily. Right? So we try to do that with our daughter and with our son. Our son, he's, he's young, so he kind of doesn't really get it, but we try anyways, right? He can say amen. That's about all he got, right? But my daughter, especially my daughter, she's, she's very smart, or smarter than me. Not smarter than mom, but give her a year, okay? But um, my daughter, she's great, right? So we're watching The Little Mermaid. Now, I use Disney as a teaching opportunity, okay? Now, is it because I condone Disney? No. Is it because I condemn Disney? No. I do both, right? There are times where I tell her, you know what, Ariel, she should have listened to her daddy. She's naughty. God says we honor our mother and father, and she's not doing that. She's naughty. So, but one time there was a teaching moment for my daughter, right? She's, uh, she's getting nervous. She's getting scared. I think it was the first time she'd watched Ariel all the way through because usually she just runs out halfway through the movie, right? She's got attention span like her dad. And so she gets to the end of the movie and Ursula, if you don't know, I'll, I'm kind of going to spoil The Little Mermaid for you, okay? Ursula, the evil sea witch, she gets giant and huge, tentacles everywhere. She's just big, right? Intimidating, large, massive. She's got King Triton's Triton, right? Clever name, Disney. Right? So he's got his thing, and she's commanding, and the sea is doing her bidding, right? And Ariel's going down. I mean, things are not looking good. So Allie gets scared, so she clings to Daddy, which is kind of a cool moment, right? She clings to me, and I stop it. I say, baby girl, what's wrong? Baby girl, are you scared? Don't be scared. You know, she's naughty, right? Ursula, she's naughty. Yeah, she's naughty. She's disobeyed God's rules. Yeah, she's disobeyed. Well, what does that mean, baby girl? What does it mean when we're naughty? What does God do to us? Well, God punishes us. That's right, baby girl. Because even though in your life, naughty people are going to look like they're winning. And there are times when naughty people, it looks like they win. But at the end, all naughty people are punished. Baby girl, that's called justice. Now, baby girl, the problem is you're naughty too. And you know who else is naughty? Daddy's naughty. Mommy's naughty. All those in-laws, they're naughty. <laughs> we include that in the gospel presentation. Right? They're all naughty. So what needs to happen to us, baby girl? Oh, we need to be punished. That's right. But God loves us so much that he decided he would take the punishment for us. And so there's still justice, but then there's love. Then I played the movie. 
Now, I'm not saying she understands all of that. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But this is what Deuteronomy 6 is talking about. It's talking about teaching them at every single opportunity that you can. Every time. Not on just Sunday service. And we know the temptation. Football season is happening. We don't talk about what the Lord did on Sunday morning. We got to get that recorded game on the television. That's what we do. And so I know I'm a sports fan. I feel you on that one. But this is the remedy to our forgetfulness. It's to teach our kids diligently. Now the saddest part before Moses dies, we have Egypt over there. We have Canaan over here, the promised land. We have the in-between that's called the wilderness. And Moses, before he dies, says we need to teach our children. He brings it straight back to the family. But before he can get to that point, the greatest moment of their failure is in Numbers 14. And this is what's going to set the context for our man, Joshua, who I think is the perfect person to look at for getting away from this sin of forgetfulness. Joshua's story starts right there at the greatest failure of Israel. And what happens is the people of God get so close to the promised land. And if you have ever read the Bible, this is the part that was really exciting to me when I was a new Christian. I didn't really know a lot of the stories of the Bible. So when I finally made it to Numbers, which takes a long time, getting through Genesis is hard, okay? I'm a pastor. The Bible's hard to read sometimes, okay? You got to get through it. So I got to get to Numbers 14, and I just learned how to read. I'm 13 years old, okay? So I'm learning how to read and reading the Bible at the same time. Difficult, especially when you get to the Hervishites and the Amalekites and all those guys. My phonetics were going everywhere, okay? But anyways, you get to the point of reaching the promised land, and they send out these spies. And I'm excited. I'm excited because, man, I remember the promise he made to Abraham. This is about to go down. This is about to get realized. We're talking the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're right there. 400 years in slavery. This is the dream, the hope that they had when they were in chains. This is what helped them persevere during 400 years of slavery. And they're right there. This is game seven in Boston, right? The incitement. And what do they do? They fall, oh man, miserably. They miserably fail. They send out their 12 spies. 10 come back, say, we can't do this. Two say, you know what, let's do this thing. Joshua goes in there, he's like, dude, I've seen God. Did you see what he did in Egypt? I was there. I saw those 10 plagues. I want to see him again. Let's do this thing. He's ready to saddle up. He's ready to go. But the people of God follow what? The majority. They follow the 10. And you could almost feel the tension in Joshua. He had to go in and cut off some of the fruit so big that men had to carry this thing. Men. He saw the bliss. He saw the hope. He saw the milk and honey. He saw the promised land. And he's got to go back. He's got to go back. And then he doesn't get to go in for 40 years. But listen to how God, listen to how God feels when his people don't trust him. In Numbers 14, 11, this is what he says to Moses. When they decide that they can't take the land, this is what he says to Moses. How long will these people despise me? Despise me. Look at me in a way with complete and utter disregard. How will they despise me? How long will they despise me? How long will they not believe in me? in spite of all the signs that I've done among them. God's heart is broken. And Israel looks utterly foolish. 
if they could just remember. Now, this is a generation that was in Egypt. Joshua right now, he's probably about 20, and he was there in Egypt. You think God took down the world power at the time without even an army, without even an army. And now they're going to an opponent who pales in comparison to the Egyptians. These guys are petty little weaklings. It's like going heavyweight to featherweight. Not even close. They wouldn't be in the same ring, okay? Not even close. We're talking major leagues to T-ball. That's, that's what their opponent is. And now Israel has what? They have an army. They have greater supply, a weaker opponent, but no faith. But no faith. And God says, nope. You're in timeout for 40 years. You're in timeout for 40 years, and in this 40 years, you will wander the desert, and every single generation, or sorry, this generation will die. All of you. All of you will die. There are only two men that I'm keeping, and that's the name of Joshua and Caleb, the ones who came into the promised land, came back with a good report. They're the only ones who are making. Everybody else in that generation is dead. Is dead. And the cool thing is, Joshua gets to go back. So Joshua waits 40 years, remembering when he entered that promised land. He waits 40 years, and when he comes in, that 40 years has not in any way dampened his resolve. He comes in guns blazing, and he takes the promised land. The book of Joshua is all about that. He comes in, and every piece that God wants, basically he takes over. Wins many, many, many battles. But Joshua's about to die. Now, if you were Joshua, if I'm Joshua, you know what I'm doing? Before I die, this is the greatest I told you so moment in the history of the world. Right? Before I die, I'm going, see, I told you. Did I not tell you? 40 years ago. Who was that attractive guy 40 years ago? Man, about his 20s, came in and said, hey, let's do this thing. Who was? Oh, yeah, that's me. Right? And look what we have. We've entered the promised land. We've conquered it all. Look what we've done. But Joshua doesn't do that. Joshua takes a similar approach that Moses did in Deuteronomy 6. Moses in Deuteronomy 6, before he dies, he knows the people's sin is forgetfulness. So he says, he brings it back to the home. You teach your children diligently. Keep the things of the Lord before you. Then Joshua does the same exact thing. Check out Joshua chapter 24. Now I'm going to read a lot of Joshua 24. This is going to be a large passage. And the reason why is because I want you to feel the full effect of what he does instead of doing an I told you so moment. Look at the attention he brings to one person. He exhausts this point. He is basically going to recount all of Israel's history and he has one person as the hero, one person as the main character. This is Joshua 24, that passage I told you to put your finger in that part of your Bible. Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 2, it says this. He gathers all the people together right before he dies. He did this in 23, but turns out he didn't die. So what did he decide? Let's do this thing again. So he brings everybody together, and this is what he says. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, How long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah and the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and 
I gave Esau the hill country of Sire to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued the Egyptians with what I did in the midst of it. And afterwards, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and with horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites." And who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. And then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against you. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you did not build and you dwelled in them. You ate the fruit of the vineyards and the olive orchards that you did not plant. Who's the hero of Joshua's story? God, right? 18 annoying, at least with my voice inflection, eyes. I, 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 over and over and over and over again in Joshua's life, who's the hero? God, God, not anybody else. Now, the funny thing is Joshua was a part of most of those battles that he just recounted, and he doesn't mention himself even once. Not once. And he has every reason to. He was the only one of two who said we can do this. He's the only one that remains in that generation. And he knows he waited 40 years as every single body fell. He remembered the Lord. 40 years of funerals he attended. And he remembered the Lord to not doubt him, to not forget and then Joshua says this, and I think this is important. If we want to pass on the faith, if we don't want to fall to the sin of forgetfulness. In verse 15, Joshua does this. He calls them to a decision. God is our hero, therefore, if it is evil to you in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The most quoted passage... The most quoted passage in all of Christian homes. You'll see it plastered everywhere in Christian homes. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua made a family decision. And what you do not see is Joshua didn't look for consensus. He didn't go back in the minivan and say, all right, guys, is everybody cool going to church? I mean, you want me to drop you off at the field? Or are we going to, he makes a family decision. I'm the leader. He doesn't wait. He presents the decision to Israel, says, who are you going to serve, guys? As for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. He's the leader. He makes a decision. God is my hero. He brings it straight back to the family. He brings it straight back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, before we get practical, I think there's another person that we need to look at just briefly. His name is Paul. Another person who's very concerned with the faith passing on. And Paul postures himself just like Joshua and just like Moses. Just like Joshua and Moses, he does this. He says, I support the faith passing in the family. We see this in first, or sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
verse 15, and 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Timothy, who's going to be the pastor of a great church in Ephesus, is Paul's, um, he's the one he, Paul mentors. He, he, he's his, his, um, his understudy, if you will, okay? And Paul looks at the history of Timothy, sees his great faith, and this is what he says to Timothy. He says, as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been equated with the sacred writings which were able to make you wise through salvation in Jesus Christ. When did Timothy learn the gospel? When he was a child. Deuteronomy 6. He learned it when he was a child. Joshua 24. If it's for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. He learned it. So he supports the family as the vehicle that God uses to remember the things of the Lord. But Paul does more than that. I think he takes it even a step further than Moses and a step further than Joshua. He not only sees the family as a way for the faith to go on, he also sees beyond the family. You see, because Timothy, when he's mentioned, we don't see the mention of his father. This is what it says. It says, A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice and now dwells in you. What is he saying? Timothy, this is what happened. Your faith was over here with your grandma and she took you to Sunday school. She went to Awana's with you. You had to memorize all those verses like Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? And then in your mom, she took you to Awana's. She drug you to everything, right? She did all that stuff. But we're never mentioned of a father. Now we look in the book of Acts, we know that Timothy's dad is actually a Greek and his mother is a Jew. So right there we see some conflict already. And apparently that conflict was so present that Timothy's dad never became a believer because he's not mentioned here in the passing on of faith. So what happened? What did Paul do? What did Paul do when there was no spiritual father in Timothy's life? What did he do? He became it. When he talks to Timothy, when he addresses Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first letter he writes to this Timothy, he says in verse 2, you are my true child in the faith. And in verse 18 he says, this I charge to you, Timothy, my child. Timothy, or sorry, Paul, was so concerned with the faith passing on from generation to generation, he looked inside the family and outside the family. He supported what they did and he supplemented what they did. So let's get really practical. Four things I think we learn from Joshua and Paul. Four things I think we learn from Joshua and Paul on how we can fight this sin of forgetfulness. First is this, Joshua made a family decision. Joshua said, I'm the leader. Moses instructs us, we're the leaders. See, for some reason in modern America, secular education is mandatory, but we have made sacred education optional. That's not Deuteronomy 6. Now, I know as a youth pastor, because I usually get these kind of complaints. You know, Paul, what you do on Tuesday night, it's just not cool enough for my kid. He doesn't enjoy it. You know what you do on Sunday mornings? Man, it doesn't really teach him. You know that volleyball that you do, that doesn't really work. And all the events that you spend time away from your family doing, you know, those don't work either. You can sense a little tension in me, right? Well, what am I supposed to do? I'm trying. But you know what? Who made fun a criteria for church? Why do I need to do that? Now, I do it. Why? Because I want to make the easiest avenue for the gospel to go. And I'm not going to put any unnecessary hurdles in front of the gospel except for faith and repentance. That's it. So if you, I'm going to make it look cool. Why? So you don't think church isn't cool. But there is an end to those pursuits. I'm not the coolest guy on the planet. And I'm only getting older. <laughs> right? 
and I don't listen to Molly Cyrus, and I don't do all that stuff. So it's hard for me. Culture is moving away from me. I'm trying to chase it down to insert the gospel in there, but this is true. Help me here. Why is sacred education optional? Joshua doesn't consult his kids. Well, you know, do you really want to go? Is that youth pastor cool enough for you? You know, he's kind of a Southern California guy, you know, and you're more of like a, you know, urban kind of, you know, you know, I mean, you're all about like Tupac. No, he's dead. But I mean, you know, you're all about that kind of stuff. Maybe he doesn't reach you. Now, I understand this. I understand this. There's freedom. There's choice. There's individuality in the kingdom of God. That is true. I'm not telling you, bring your kids, let's dunk them in the pool of baptism. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. There is freedom for the pool, but not freedom for the pew. We make a family decision for them to come. A family decision. And the scary part about this is you know who's responsible for that? Parents. Us. Deuteronomy 6 is your command. My command, not their command. See, but what we do is we almost wait for their individuality to embrace Jesus Christ and then they go off and what happens? They can't remember the things of the Lord because we never taught them the things of the Lord. And you may say, Paul, but they don't like it. You know what else they don't like? They don't like biology homework. They don't like algebra homework. They don't like chores. They do a lot of stuff that they don't like and they're going to do a lot of stuff that they don't like. How many of you don't really enjoy your jobs? Right? I mean, that's a lesson we have to learn. But what I'm saying is this. I understand that you want them to love this place. I get that. But I have seen a thousand times as a student minister, just for nine years, I've seen a thousand times mothers and fathers coming and you say, Paul, he's out there. He's lost. He's gone. And all I think is, God, I pray that it's like the prodigal son. I pray that when he, my son or my daughter, and I'm, this, this, I'm not saying I'm not, uh, uh, exempt from this. But there will be a day where, where, where Paxton and Allie break daddy's heart. But I hope when they're off in sin, they'll remember what I told them every night about Jesus Christ. Because we will do them a disservice if we don't. There'll be no life preserver for them to grab. They'll be out there on their own because we were waiting for church to be cool. So the first thing I think we need to do is we need to make a choice, a family choice, an active choice, a Joshua 24 choice, a Deuteronomy chapter 6 choice. The second thing I think we need to do is we need to let the faith of our family be supported. Lois and Eunice did this, Timothy's mother and grandmother. He let the, they let their faith be supported. When the dad wasn't there as a spiritual father, they let Paul into the lives of their young boy, Timothy. Let us help you. We're here to help you. I'm not your enemy. I'm your greatest, I'm your greatest champion. I'm, I'm here to help you. If you look at our student ministries between our junior high pastor and our high school pastor, there's 14 years of theological academic education. 14 years. This is after high school. 14 years of theological education. Thousands of pages read just understanding youth culture and how to encapsulate the gospel in a way that is easy for them to understand and know with arguments that they feel. There are two lives dedicated to reaching your students. Just let us help you. I am not your enemy. I am here to help you. I am here to support you. Let us help you. The third thing I think we need to do as a church is we need to supplement 
We need to supplement the faith of the family. And what do I mean by that? I mean, you need to be a spiritual mother and father for some of our students here at church. Now, there are a lot of students who go to this church, a lot of students who their parents don't attend here, who their parents aren't believer. They're a first-generation Christian. They need a spiritual mom and dad because they'll leave. They'll leave if they're not cared for. It's true. They won't have bearings on how to make the life transition between high school and college, to make decisions between a, bo- a boyfriend, a girlfriend, all that. They won't know those parameters. We need you, church, especially in the Bay Area. We know our homes are broken. They've been broken for a while. And I believe God wants to redeem the family, but God will redeem outside of the family, and he'll use you to do it. This is what we do mostly in our student ministry. All of our adults who work in our student ministry, they are their spiritual mothers and fathers. And some of your kids, if you ask them, if you ask some of these students, who do you feel like is taking care of your soul? They won't point to their parents. They'll point to volunteers in our student ministry. Lastly, I think, and this is what I think is the most important, How do we pass on the faith? How do we not fall to the sin of forgetfulness? I think we need to make God the hero of our home. Timothy did this. We know when he recounted all of the history of Israel, he never inserted his name in there. It was only God over and over and over and over and over again. The Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, all defeated by the Lord. He set the hornet. Right? It's all God, 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 God. Paul does the same exact thing. Paul, when he's writing to his spiritual son, like he calls him, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, this is what he says. He says, Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying, deserving of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, Timothy, of whom I am the foremost. Or some Bible says, of whom I am the chief of sinners. You talk about a reality check there. You talk about full disclosure there. Paul goes up to Timothy and says, I'm not your hero. Now, this is hard. I got a little girl. Daddy likes to be the hero. You know what I mean? I like when she grabs my arm. My wife doesn't do that because she knows I don't really stand a chance if somebody mugs us. I'm a little guy. My daughter thinks I can slay dragons, though. You know what I mean? If they're real. Right? She does. She believes in daddy. And you know what? It feels good to be the hero. Doesn't it? Dads, it feels great to be the hero but you're not the hero. You're the sidekick. You're Robin, man. You're not Batman. You know what I mean? I'm not saying you got to wear tights. Some of you, please don't. Okay, don't take this literally. But we have to see ourselves not as the hero. And I understand what we're doing. I understand. I understand that some of you were saved in your adult life and you don't want your kids to know the sins that you did in the past. I get that. You don't want them to know about the drugs. You don't want them to know about the illicit sex. You don't want them to know any of those things. And I get that. You don't want them to glory in your past, but you do want them to see his glory in your past. Because they have to. See, what we do when we hide the sins, our sins, from our children, what we do is we create in them their emotional and spiritual stability is anchored on us. And what happens? They become teenagers and they start seeing you and they see dad is not all he's cracked up to be. Right? And then they see the Christian faith is disingenuine because you're not perfect. You know what? That should have been a lesson they learned when they're a teenager. They should learn it when they're young. Daddy is naughty. Daddy did not die for you. That's hard. 
I remember having this conversation with my daughter. I've, I've apologized to my daughter. Baby, daddy should not have said that. That was wrong. Daddy is naughty. Daddy breaks the rules. Daddy deserves punishment. Daddy deserves hell. And you know what, baby girl? Daddy loves you so much, but daddy did not die on the cross for you. Daddy did not take your punishment. Daddy couldn't take your punishment. My daughter is not yet four. These are the conversations that we have. Daddy could not take your punishment. But you know who did, baby girl? Jesus Christ took your punishment. He has to be the hero of our homes. They have to know that you've sinned, that you're wrong, that you're weak, and that God is strong. Because what will happen is when we do that, God becomes the anchor of their emotional, spiritual stability. So when life comes in and shakes them, or you fail, or I fail, or people fail around them, the center of their life will be concrete, will be a cornerstone. Not you, not me. Our kids are wounded, wounded by their image of the parents. The number one common denominator of those incarcerated is what? A broken and damaged home. Usually in the line of the father. We are inserting ourselves in a role that we do not belong in. We are not the hero or the sidekick. Valley Bible Church, it's an interesting transition and you have some of the reasons why we're doing the transition. And I know, I don't want us to pass away. I don't want the faith to pass away. I talked with Phil, Pastor Phil, um, just a little while ago, and I, I told him, I said, Phil, um, man, there are times I feel that when the Bible says in Timothy that we need to preach in season and out of season, Phil, there are times I feel like we're the out of season. Phil, if I'm honest with you, I feel like the tide is going out for Christianity in the West. That's what I feel like. When I see these statistics, that's what I feel like. But we're not going to go down without a fight. And every generation in the history of the people of God have dealt with this forgetfulness. It's been a problem, it's been a syndrome, it's been a sickness. But we can pass it on. We can pass it on. And this is why we're making this transition. And the biggest help you could be to us is this, because we know this. We may be convinced that this is a good idea to move students to 9 o'clock over there and 11 o'clock have an intergenerational service, not a youth service, not an adult service, but an intergenerational service where everybody is together singing the praises of God. That might be, our, we are convinced of that. But you will vote, and you will vote with your feet. Please vote for this. And how do I mean that? Please view Sunday as a two-service Sunday. I know it's early. I get that. I'm not a morning person. I get that. But please, we have a Bible study that's starting just for families. Just for families. If you're married, you ain't got kids yet. Or if you got kids or your kids have left, you're still a family unit. And if your kids are going and they're getting stuff for them at 9 o'clock, we want to give you stuff so you can pass on the faith. And we have a great teacher doing that, Pastor Tim Balstrom, one of my wife's favorite teachers. This guy has raised every kind of kid. His own kid, kids brought into marriage, all that stuff. He's dealt with all of those. He has kids that are older and kids that are young. This man has a doctorate in the experience of raising a family. And he will do a great job at teaching you. Let him teach you at 9 o'clock. Let your children be taught at 9 o'clock. And then let us come together and experience the faith as a community. You'll vote. August 19th, you'll vote. Please, please vote to pass on this faith. Let's pray. 
God, I thank you for who you are in Jesus Christ. I thank you. I thank you for saving me. I thank you for saving, um, man, I just, I thank you for the work of the cross that my guilt was thrown on him. I had nothing to offer. I couldn't save my daughter. I couldn't save myself. My soul was weak and broken. I was thrown into a pit that I could not climb out of. And I dug that pit myself with my sin, with disobeying you. But you have freed me. You're the one who stretched down and pulled me out of that pit. And it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that now gives me life. Father, thank you for forgiveness. I pray that you would help us to pass this on. I do not want to be out of season in the Christian faith. I do not want the tide to leave us in the West. I don't want this thing to pass away. I want to pass it on. Father, help us to do that. And you're my prey. Amen.